took note that they had been with Jesus, that people in our town, in our workplaces, in our homes, would look at us and say, wow, they are spending time with Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would be, um, that we would be that peculiar people set apart to you and uh, to your work. Lord, and uh, we thank you that we have the privilege of gathering together this morning. Lord, of acknowledging that you are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Uh, that you are the God who sees us. That you are the God who heals us and helps us. And Lord, we, we are a needy people. And so we, we do cry out to you today, Lord, uh, just on behalf of uh, those who are experiencing uh, uh, physical and emotional and even just spiritual needs right now, Lord, we ask that you would meet their needs. I think specifically of Donna Horton as she recovers from rotator cuff surgery. Lord, I pray that you uh, uh, would just be with her and, Lord, that you would help her as she adjusts and as she heals, and that she would uh, experience a full healing. Lord, I lift up Paula Kroon. Uh, Lord, uh, she continues to recover from a kidney transplant. Lord, I just pray for those medications to work as they're supposed to, and specifically I pray for encouragement for her, Lord, that you would watch over her and care for her. Lord, I lift up Brad Gabbert to you and Jing and uh, their sons, Lord, as, as he faces just new treatments and uh, just even a new issue, Lord, that you would give them wisdom. Uh, Lord, we ask for your healing and your grace and just your, your wisdom as they continue in that. And Lord, so many others, I pray for Nick Herringer and his family, Lord, that you would continue to work there, and Bev Kimenaugh, Lord, that uh, you would work in her life in terms of this Parkinson's, and also in Willis Gabbard's life, Lord, that you would bring in that healing. Lord, I pray for, uh, just continue to pray for Jason Knott, and for Pastor Paul, even, and his son Josh, as they face ALS, uh, different stages, but Lord, we, we pray for your comfort and your peace and your care for them. Lord, we, we thank you for that, but we know there are just so many other needs. Uh, and Lord, our, our, our biggest need is, is to know you uh, deeper and deeper. And so we pray today as we listen to your word, Lord, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. And uh, Lord, we pray your word would be powerful and active in our lives as we listen today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite the children to come on down front for the story for the adults, the only part they understand. All right. <laughs> Come on down, have a seat on the floor if you want. What have I got here, kids? A trumpet. It's a trumpet. What? Come on, it's a trumpet. Must be more kids than this. Here they come. 
Here comes the thundering herd. All right, guys. All right. Well, so I was about nine years old. Any nine-year-olds here? Okay. Older, younger. All right. Come on, girls. Have a seat. When I decided I wanted to play the trumpet, and so my dad went to a pawn shop and bought one, but it wasn't a very good trumpet. And eventually, they had to buy me another one, and, and then eventually that one kind of wore out, and I got another one, and then I sold it. And then a few years ago, I found one in an antique store. It was 35 bucks. How about that? It was the same kind I played in high school in the marching band. Now, the thing with the trumpet is I quit playing the trumpet when I was 17 years old. After my junior year in high school, the whole drum line graduated. They were a bunch of jocks who played the drums, and I knew you weren't going to have a marching band without a drum line. We had a bunch of freshmen that could hardly lift a drum. I'm not marching in parades without a drum line, so I gave it up, put the trumpet away, really haven't played it much since. So have mercy. I'm going to have mercy on you and only play a little bit just to demonstrate something, right? Half got its foot caught in a bear trap. All right. So the way a trumpet works, by the way, is uh, the longer the tube, the lower the note. The shorter the tube, the higher the note. And these valves make the air go through a longer trip or a shorter trip. That's how a trumpet works. But that's not what I came to tell you about. I came to tell you about practicing. When you start to play a brass instrument, whether it's a trombone or a trumpet or a baritone or a French horn or a tuba, you have to use your lip and vibrate it in this mouthpiece. So. That tone isn't real good, okay? And that's because I haven't played for so long. And it takes about a year of one hour a day practicing with the mouthpiece, practicing your trumpet, before you begin to get a lip that will produce a good tone. You have to do that hour a day. You can just take your mouthpiece and... With Donald Duck. Okay, like that. So you don't have to do it in the trumpet, but you have to have that pressure in that lip and teaching that lip how to vibrate in the right way. And the more you do, the higher you can play. Uh, you should have a range that goes to at least high C, but the guys who are really good can go to high G over high G. And just get that, this way up there real high and all the way down to low G, three octaves lower is the range on a trumpet. If you don't practice that hour today, you'll never get any good. I could learn, I didn't do enough. I could finger, I could read. I played up for, on the first chair, the third trumpet on the first chair. Because I could read music and play, but my range was not good, and my tone was mediocre at best. Why? Because I'd skip a day every once in a while. You can't skip a day if you're going to play a brass instrument. That's why this happens. Uh, the middle school orchestra said the newspaper one morning, last night the middle, middle school orchestra played Beethoven. Beethoven lost. It's because the kids in the middle school orchestra don't have embouchures yet. 
So the trombone sounds like a sick cow. The trumpet sounds like a turkey that got its foot caught in a rat trap. It just doesn't sound good yet because it takes a long time to build up an embouchure. Now, what's the point of this story? The point of the story, it's like this in your Christian life. When you have Jesus in your heart, there's no condemnation for you. You're going to heaven. But he wants you to grow up and learn things about him, learn to walk with him, and learn to serve him. And you know what? That takes daily work, daily time in prayer, daily time in God's word. If you don't do it, you're not going to grow. You're not going to become effective and fruitful for Jesus. It's just like playing an instrument. And God wants to use you and play a beautiful tune in your life. So, boys and girls, spend time in his word every day. All right, you can take your seats again. I know you You can come up afterwards and we'll give you a chance. We'll give you a chance to try it. All right. Later. All right. Well, this morning we're looking at, in back in the book of Acts again, and chapters uh, 21 and 22, as Paul confronts the mob. And by the way, it's, uh, it's good to be back. Somebody asked me before we left, when are you coming back and why? But uh, here, I, here I am. <clears throat> it is good to be here. We had a good time. Um, I guess before we get into this, we had an excellent turnout this morning for the introduction to Revelation 2 and 3. If you couldn't make it, there are handouts from that available in the back, and, and uh, there's a homework assignment. The one that has the questions on it, that's printed on one side. Take it home, pray about it, fill it out, bring it back. Come back 9 o'clock next week for the Sunday school hour and a half. We're going to give it an extra half hour so we have more time to talk. And uh, we're going to hear from Jesus this week. I believe it. A letter from Jesus is what's going to result from this. A letter from Jesus to the Berean Bible Church of Hastings, Nebraska. Back here in the book of Acts, Paul is in crisis. Uh, we are in crisis today. I don't know if you've ever been in, a, in the middle of a mob that's out of control. I got the bright idea about my second year in Philadelphia to bring some of the kids with me, and we went out street witnessing and uh, made the mistake of going to the Longcrest wreck on a Friday night, and a bunch of the guys, high school guys, were over there, and they were drunk, and I ended up out in the middle of Rising Sun Avenue being kicked around like a football. Uh, not a good feeling. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul ends up, only with a much bigger mob, almost being torn in two. And this serves as a kind of a case study. Case studies are something that teachers use. You look at actual events and you try to learn things from them. You reflect and so on. And I think that's why God gave us this story. We see Paul in crisis. And we're in crisis. We're not getting kicked around in the middle of rising Sutton Avenue, but the world is going nuts. Um, this has been a, it's been a fun week in U.S. Congress, hasn't it? Lord, please give us adults. 
to rule over us? I don't know. I don't know what to say. I have no particular political agenda. I just, you know, where are the gentlemen and gentlewomen? Where are people who act like grown-ups? I have no confidence in Congress at all. They should charge me with contempt of Congress because that's how I feel about it. This is crisis. I'm upset. And, you know, we live in a world that's got, in the United States, our moral standards are disintegrating around us and crazy stuff is being foisted on us as, as normal. It's not, we're in crisis. It's a tough time. So let's look at what, what Paul did. So if you have your Bible, you want to turn to chapter 21, first of all, and, and Paul gets caught out in the temple. And uh, let's look at this. Verse 27 of chapter 21. When seven days were almost completed, seven days of a vow that Paul was fulfilling. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So Paul runs into this mob because of the Jews who happened to come from Ephesus, and they recognized they had seen Trophimus, who was also from Ephesus, in Jerusalem with Paul, and then they concluded that Paul had brought him into the temple, which he hadn't. So this is the first thing in this case study that is kind of surprising. This is a warning about something, and the warning is this. Do not be quick to impute bad behavior to people just because you don't like them. I think that happened in Congress this week, frankly. All kinds of bad behavior, but just because I don't like this guy. Not, not a good thing to do. It's very easy for me to believe bad things about certain politicians. I, I don't, this may come as a shock to you, but I'm not a fan of Hillary. You could tell me almost anything about her and I would believe it. That doesn't mean it's true. And we can take that from the realm of politics where it doesn't matter because I don't know her personally to our own personal lives too. Uh, maybe there are neighbors or relatives of yours that you just are really, really easy for you to impute bad motives to them just because you don't like them. Not a good thing to do. This is just a mistake. If, if this ever actually came to court, which eventually it did, it's interesting that none of these Jews from Ephesus who made that charge dared to show their face because they had absolutely no evidence for the charge that they brought against Paul. This is a capital crime, by the way, for a Gentile to come into the precincts of the Jewish temple. That's a death penalty crime. So it was serious in their eyes, but it hadn't happened. They just charged Paul with doing that because they didn't like him. It's easy to do. So just one warning. Don't do that. It's not good in God's eyes when he sees, and particularly his children, acting like that. It's not what he does to you. If he charges you with something, it's because he saw you do it, just as a reminder. All right. Then what's worse? Look at verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So the, 
rumor spreads like wildfire. Can you imagine how fast rumors spread today? Oh, sure you can. Twitter. Rumors now spread at the speed of light across the whole world, not just across the city. So be very careful what you say. My, my solution in dealing with Twitter is I don't have a Twitter account. It's far, far better, so I don't make any stupid mistakes and say things that offend the whole world all at once. Now, verse 31, And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Romans to the rescue. I thought they were the bad guys. As you read the book of Acts, pay attention to this. In fact, in the, in the New Testament period, centurions. Centurions are almost always the good guys. It's a good thing they were around to keep the peace, isn't it? You know, that's the way it is today with law enforcement officers. They're the ones that have to run into the middle of the mob and straighten out the mess and put their own lives at risk for the good of the community. And they're the ones who are suffering all kinds of reviling and defund the police and all this negative stuff and criticism when we ought to be praising God for them because they are ministers of God just like I am. And they help keep us safe. And the, and the Romans actually come out pretty good here in the book of Acts. Once again, Paul's bacon gets saved by these Gentiles, these pagan Gentiles. This is kind of neat. Then verses 37 to 39. We'll skip down here. As Paul was being brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he's speaking Greek, which was the universal language. And this tribune is surprised. You know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt, led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language. Language skills to the rescue. First, Romans to the rescue. Now, the fact that he was at least bilingual to the rescue. Probably Aramaic here, although certainly he could speak Hebrew as well. This is a related language, but that was also a common language and the one that the Jews spoke in Jerusalem in the first century. So he could speak Greek to the Romans. They knew that language because that was the common language. It was like English in the world today. Almost everywhere you go, people speak English. In those days, it was Greek. And he also knew Aramaic. And immediately, people get quiet. So here's another lesson from this case study. Try to speak to people in their own language whenever possible. Speak to them in their own language. Speak to them about what? Well, I'm talking about our responsibility to be people who bear the message of the gospel and talk to people about Jesus. So speak to them in their own language. This is why we support Wycliffe translators. You know Wycliffe people, I'm sure, and, and the, the basic missiology behind Wycliffe is that people need to hear the gospel in the language of their heart, the language that they learned as a little child, the language that they think in. It's so helpful 
when they can hear it in their own language and don't have to hear the, the gospel as a second or third language. It's very important. But this has another application because, you know what, everybody around here pretty much speaks English, right? I mean, pretty much. Uh, by the way, we get um, mail almost every day from UCARE, which is our health care provider. And what is the last page? has how many different languages on it? Nine? Nineteen different languages. This is up in the Twin Cities. There's a whole page that gives you all the different languages. You can call and get your monthly report from them in that language. Nineteen different languages. <clears throat> I can't handle that. I'm, I'm having trouble with English, okay? But, but we don't really have to worry so much about speaking another language. It's more and more Spanish, of course, but for the most part, you know, around here you can talk English to people and they understand you. That is their language, except that when we talk about spiritual things, sometimes we talk our own language. And so we'll use terms like, uh, like being born again, for example. Or we, we talk about, oh, I, I, I was reading God's Word today. And there are people that don't understand that God's Word is this book. They think maybe you get letters from God or something. They don't understand. We, we use Christian jargon, which is not the language of the world. And it's good to think about this. I don't think there's anything wrong, because I do this all the time, from, for using theological language from the pulpit. I know there's a school of thought that says, well, you never talk about the substitutionary atonement because people don't know what in the world you mean. Well, that might be true, but you can explain it. And explaining it is a really good thing to do because it's a, such an essential part of the gospel, namely that Jesus died in our place. He shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to bear the wrath of God on ourselves. That's the substitutionary atonement. But if we're going to use theological terms, we need to explain them because people need to hear in their own language, in words that they understand. Does that make sense? That's right here. This is Paul's method. I'm going to talk to people in the language of their heart whenever I can. Greeks to the Romans, I don't know if Paul knew Latin or not. But to my own people, Aramaic, the language that they speak, that they learned as they were growing up. Language skills are important. Avoid jargon. Now, the next thing Paul does, verse chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. Paul is establishing common ground with the mob. I'm a Jew, like you from Tarsus, but I grew up here in Jerusalem, and I went to Harvard, by the way. Or maybe, to put it, to translate it for us, I went to the University of Nebraska. See? I'm one of you guys. I'm not some, you know, extremist. This, I'm one of you. Common ground. What is common ground? It's hard to find common ground with some people. Maybe I've shared this before. I, I got to uh, spend two years attending the clergy trialogues in uh, Detroit. Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And I learned very quickly that 
we all had common ground in this regard. We all wanted to live in a safe neighborhood, which is important in Detroit because there are very few of them, where, where you know, we could bring up our kids in safety and have good schools for them. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, a Christian, or a Jew. That's a common ground. We can work together for some things. We want to have good health care, for example. We, have, we want to have access to good public education. There's common ground that we share with people so that we can talk to them and not always be butting heads together. So keep this in mind. What is the common ground you have with the people around you? This is where Paul starts before he begins to diverge a little bit, talking about his conversion. So Paul then relates his conversion testimony in verses 6 to 12. Let's start there. So uh, he's journeying towards Damascus. I'm looking for my little verse starts. Okay. So from the elders, he received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem. Verse 6, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? Paul's conversion testimony. So Paul starts by establishing common ground. He speaks to them in the language of their heart, and then he shares how he came to know Christ. He was ready with his testimony. How long did it take him to share this testimony? I didn't time it. It was less than two minutes, wasn't it? Starting after we're done next week, the following week, we're going to start an evangelism class here, personal evangelism course downstairs during the Sunday school hour. One of the first things we're going to do I think second week or so, we're going to work on our personal testimony. And I, I'm doing this not because I think you're ignorant of how to share the gospel, but I'll bet it's been a while since you worked on your personal testimony. And let me ask you this. Do you have a two-minute version? Paul had a two-minute version. He could do this very quickly. Sometimes people don't have a lot of time, but you can at least tell them how you came to know Christ in such a way that they will know how they can come to know Christ. Although i got to admit, in Paul's case, it's a little unique. You can come to know Jesus if the great light shines from you and he meets you personally and talks to you. Okay, I'll grant you that. That's not your story. It's not anybody else's story but Paul's. But, but he could still do it in two minutes. And I'm, I'm joking when I say it has to be 120 seconds. Of course, it might be more like five minutes, but it can be done, and we should be ready to do it. Paul was ready to share the story of how he came to Christ. He was always willing to talk about Jesus. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he said. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Let, let me assure you of this. You may feel like you are not worthy to talk about such things because you're slightly messed up. And maybe you think you don't have any credibility. If you share the message, don't you understand? It's the one message that has its own power. The message has power. This is why these goofy televangelists actually have something good going for them because they, some of them preach the gospel. In spite of the fact that their own lives are messed up and they're a bunch of crooks and whatnot, the one thing they do that's good is they preach the gospel. And in spite of the messenger, who's all messed up, people get saved anyway. 
If that works for Jimmy Swagger, it'll work for you, okay? Because you're not as messed up as him. You'll never be that messed up. You can share the gospel with courage, with impunity, because the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. Let's get it out there and see how it changes lives. There are people who are just dying to hear it, literally. They're going to hell if they don't receive it. Share it with them. So, common ground, common language, sharing that conversion story, he was ready. Then Paul responds. Jesus talks to him. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I think he already knows. He'd been thinking about this for a long time. This is an interesting fact here in this case study. Paul is a perfect example of the person who is fighting against conviction. Some of the very people that you know who are the most resistant to the gospel are the ones who are the closest to receiving Jesus as their Savior. They're fighting against it. It's always on their mind. The, the, the person who is really lost is the one who's totally indifferent. They don't care one way or the other. Yeah, whatever. When a person moves to the place of resistance and arguing against it, now we've got dialogue going on. Between them and the Holy Spirit, they are under conviction. Don't give up. In an instant, Paul went from being an enemy of the gospel to being its greatest evangelist. Just like that. He'd been thinking about it for years. What if this is true? What if he really did rise from the dead? What if he really is the promised Messiah? Who are you, Lord? And the answer was the dreaded one. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, yeah. Paul's thinking, oh, yeah. That's what I was afraid of. Whom you are persecuting. So don't be afraid of opposition to the gospel. Be ready to share even those fighting against it the most are close to coming to the truth. And Jesus has an interesting description of himself in that he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Who has Paul been persecuting? Christians. He's been going after the church. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus identifies with us. If we come under persecution, it's Jesus that's being persecuted. Yeah, we're out front, but the body of Christ is Jesus. As far as this persecution is concerned, he takes offense at what is being done to him. I started reading maybe a couple of years ago how things were changing in China. Uh, China had been open to the gospel. Christianity was spreading in China. Uh, house churches, public churches, even in the open, more and more people coming to Christ in China. Uh, there was a point even as long ago as about 30 years ago when I think there were more born-again Christians in China than there were in the United States and Canada than in North America. Of course, that's because there's a billion and a half people in China, and even a very tiny percentage is a lot of people. That's why General Motors sells Buicks over in China. You think, who could buy a Buick in China? Well, it doesn't take a very big percentage of the population. There is a lot of born-again people. And so the Chinese government saw that and began to crack down. And I'm sure you've read that they made them take the crosses down and they put up a picture of the chairman in the front of the building and they, had it. they took their Bibles away and gave them an expurgated version of the Bible into all this. And I thought, China's in trouble. 
As soon as I read that, I realized China is in trouble because when you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus, and Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't do that and not have something happen. And what's happened to China? They were on their way to becoming the world's greatest economic power, going right past the United States like a rocket ship taking off. And what's happened? This huge collapse. The whole stupid approach they had to COVID, lock everything down. People, they've got a rebellion going on now within their country. But you know what I trace that back to? The decision to persecute the church. It has never worked out historically. We're going to stamp out those Christians. All you do when you try to do that is you get more of them. More and more people come to Christ as they see people willing to suffer for their faith. More and more people come under conviction and repent and trust in Jesus, and that's what's happening in China today. Persecution never works as a way to stamp out Christianity. <laughs> that's, a, that's a sad thing to say, but we'd be better off as a church if we were under severe persecution. This place would fill up. Interesting, first time I went to Russia was 19... 99. Eight years after the Soviet Union had dissolved and it had become Russia, the Republic of Russia. And the churches were full. Uh, the church in Omsk was running 1,500 people on Sunday morning. It's a mega church, basically. And then the next time I went to Russia, there were fewer people in church. And the next time, fewer until the last time I went was in 2010 and the churches were about half full. It didn't cost anything to be a Christian anymore in Russia. And the old people were worried. And now, praise the Lord, they're being persecuted again. Isn't that great? It's not the communists now. It's the Orthodox Church, Christians persecuting other churches, other Christians. By the way, if, if you read up on persecution, the number one persecutor of Christians over the last 20 centuries has been secular government. That's the number one persecutor of Christians. There's nothing that's going to stop the United States government from doing that. It's what governments do eventually, sooner or later. We're a threat to them. So it'll happen. The number two persecutor of Christians over the last 20 centuries is, can you guess who? Other Christians. Okay, isn't that sad? No further comment on that one. Let's not do that to each other. Let's put it that way. So, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. To persecute the church is to persecute Christians. It's suicidal for unrepentant persecutors. So, the other people with Paul saw the light but did not understand the voice. Boy, is that a paradigm. This is a case study, remember. There's, people can see the light and not understand the voice. Back in 1974, we had the, the first and last week of meetings at the church that I've had, ever had in my pastor. That's kind of faded away. But remember when, how many of you remember when churches used to have revival meetings? A few? Yes, all the old people here remember that. <clears throat> we used to bring in a speaker, start Sunday night, then meet every week, and end on the following Sunday night. Eight days of meetings. And so we had uh, uh, Howard, Howard Anderson from uh, Bible College up in New Jersey, and he came down and, and you know, this is, and he preached really good. He preached really long sermons, and I realized his technique was to preach so long that he'd wear people down, and people made decisions for Christ that week he was there. But there was one young fellow who was dating a gal in the church that came to the Lord, Jim Fry. And, uh, and, and so in his 
his uh, fiance came up with him, Barbara Kanzelman. And they came and, and sat in my office. They wanted to see me the next week. And they came because they were planning on getting married. And, and Barbara was ecstatic that he'd come to the Lord. But then she said, she started to cry. And she said, Pastor, I know you've shared the gospel from the pulpit many, many times. I know that I must have heard it growing up because I got baptized when I was 10 years old. She said, but this last week was the first time that I realized I needed to repent of my sin and ask Jesus into my heart. She'd seen the light, but she hadn't understood the voice. That happens. We think everybody that's sitting in a pew that's come to church regularly knows the Lord. That's not necessarily the case. Sometimes it takes us a while to get it, but praise the Lord, Barbara got it, and they went on to serve the Lord together. This is really a great thing to have happen. But it was a good reminder to me, never fail to preach the gospel because there might be some old lady out there who doesn't know Jesus yet, <laughs> okay? <laughs> or some old guy who's just been going through the motions all these years, and it's time now to come to Jesus, to finally understand the voice that Jesus is calling you to repent and believe the gospel. So Paul shares this testimony, and he acts upon it. Who are you, Lord? He sees the light. He understands the voice. And in verse 10, I think if you want to see the spot here where he actually gets converted, he says, what shall I do? So we started with this morning, the challenge. Do something, okay? Respond. Jesus is calling. Now it's up to you to respond. I say that to you individually. I say that to us as a church. We're going to get this letter from Jesus. Let's do something. I'm, there's a danger here. We're doing this assessment process. We can go through the whole thing and say, this is what we should do, and here's our plan to do it, and then we'll never do it. It'll just end up in a file drawer someplace, and we'll go on, and things will be just exactly like they were before. No, no, no. I'm an old man. Don't do that to me. I don't, you can waste my time all you want, but you don't waste Jesus' time. This is a key time for this church. It's done a lot of good things. It's time to go, as they say in the sports world, up to the next level. Take it up to the next level. You ever heard those sports interviews? Coach, what's your plan for next year? I think we'll take it up to the next level. Just once I'd like to hear them say, you know, I think we'll just pretty much kick back a little bit and drop down a level. No. But, you know, if you don't keep going to the next level, you do drop back, don't you? We need to go to the... We need to do... Paul did something. He decided... This is the Lord Jesus, who I've been persecuting. Now, that was wrong. What do you want me to do? He's turned his life around. That's repentance at this point. I should say accurately, Jesus has turned his life around. So Jesus tells him what to do. He's got to go to Damascus. There you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. More to come, in other words. But first of all, you've got to get to Damascus. And so he gets led into Damascus. And then we meet one of the most reluctant evangelists of all times, Ananias, uh, like Jonah. Uh, he didn't really want to do this. Uh, Lord, don't you know who this man is? He's been persecuting the church and so on. And the Lord says, listen, you go, you go and take care of this like I tell you. And I'll let him know how much he's going to have to suffer for my name's sake. And so he goes, and Paul receives his sight and is baptized and, of course, goes on to become one of the great missionaries, if not the greatest missionary of all time. As we go on in this story, let me just kind of gloss over this, the end of the 22nd chapter, Paul has a second vision of Jesus as he's in Jerusalem praying, 
And Jesus tells him, you need to get out of town. They're going to go after you. And he's basically arguing with, with Jesus, that, just give them a little more time. But no, I want you to go. I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles, at which point, as Paul is addressing this mob, they explode with rage. Such a man ought not to be allowed to live. But what were they so angry about? And I got some help from a commentary on this one because I really didn't get it. I guess it doesn't take much to make a mob angry, but here's what was so enraging to them about this. Because what Paul was saying was that God has given Gentiles equal standing with the Jews. They were a proud people, God's chosen ones, and now Paul was saying the Gentiles are going to get in to this kingdom of God and not on the basis of keeping the law, but on the basis of grace. They get a free pass. We have to kill this guy. He's claiming that these Romans, that these Greeks, that these Scythians, all of these pagan peoples are going to come and be in the kingdom with us. We don't even want to go to that kingdom. They were so full of racial and ethnic hatred and pride in their own culture. They couldn't rejoice in what God was doing. And so the mob explodes again. But here's the gospel in Paul's conversion to sum it up. First of all, seeing Jesus, seeing the great light and hearing the voice with understanding. This is the one sent from God to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin that I might be forgiven and have eternal life meeting Jesus. Secondly, responding. Who are you, Lord? In awe at the presence of God's power and glory. Recognizing our sin. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. If you've rejected the gospel, you've rejected Jesus. You've insulted the Holy One of God. We recognize our sin, our unbelief, our rejection of him. And then we say, what shall I do? And we respond with repentance we respond, dying to ourselves and rising to new life in Christ. The first thing that Paul does outwardly is get baptized, which is a picture of being buried with Christ, rising to new life in Christ. And he called upon the name of the Lord. If you have never done that, do that. Jesus wants you as his brother or sister. He wants you in the family of God, starting right now this morning. Respond as a church. Let's be with this attitude of response. We're seeing the light and hearing the voice with understanding. This is a crunch time this week. It's crunch time in the sense, this is it. This is why I'm here. It's for us to hear what Jesus wants us to be doing. What are our problems as a congregation that we need to turn away from and repent of? Is there sin here that needs to be identified? Lay aside that sin which so easily besets us, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. And look to Jesus, listen to him, and then respond, what shall we do, Lord? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what we've looked at this morning, we recognize, is not just a nice story in a book, it's history. This really happened to Paul the Apostle. He who was going against you and who hated you and was having Christians killed was turned around in a single day with a word from you. Lord, we pray that you give us great confidence in the power of the gospel to change lives. May we never be ashamed to open up our mouth and proclaim it and to share our testimony. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as a congregation we would be really, really ready to see the light and to hear the voice of our Lord Jesus, you, Lord Jesus, and to understand it and to do 
what you want us to do. And we ask these favors in your name. Amen. Would you all please stand? Say and do, let it be all. 